You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. morning, church. My name is Wesley. Uh, Welcome. So glad you're here as we continue our series through Exodus. Now, uh, from time to time, my wife and I, we get sucked into a really good TV show, like a really good drama. I'm not going to share any one uh, particular drama right now for you. You can go and and, uh, investigate yourself on TV shows you might like. But one thing that I cannot stand is when a TV show takes like a mid-break in the middle of their season, but it's like a three- or four-month break, and you're just getting in the middle of it, and then all of a sudden you have to take this incredibly long pause. Sometimes the holidays, something is like events like, like the Olympics or something like that, that causes the shows to go on break. And so you have to have this medium time where you have to wait and and linger for the rest of the show to begin. And then when the show finally comes back around on whatever streaming service you use, they start with this recap or this introduction to the show. You might know what I'm talking about, right? Like you get back into the show and they're like, previously on. And then they go through all this like ex- extensive recap and introduction to the rest of the season. And now streaming services have gotten wise about this. And so what they do is they leave you with this lingering temptation on the screen, this little corner button that says skip recap, right? And you're, you're tempted, like, just get right to it, right? I don't, want, I don't want this, like, five-minute recap anymore. Like, skip recap, let's get right to this meaty episode that we've been lingering and waiting to see. And the reason I bring that up, because I think this passage gives that same type of temptation to us. Because we just read a passage out of Exodus 19, but today we're also going to cover Exodus 20 through 23. And when you think about Exodus 20, uh, if if you're new to the Bible, perhaps it's, it's new to you, but for those of us who know the Bible, you know that that is the giving of the Ten Commandments. We see this meaty passage, this passage that's also familiar to us, this passage we just want to dive into and, and get right to it. But if we're not careful, we'll find the same temptation today to skip the recap to skip the introduction to what God is actually doing at this season of Israel's life. And the reason why we start today in Exodus 16, the reason why we had Hannah read that passage is because Exodus 16, or 19, excuse me, Exodus 19 is the inauguration, it's the preamble, it's the opening recap and introduction to the giving of God's law. It's setting the stage for us for what's about to unfold for the rest of the book of Exodus. And it's important that we understand it because if we're tempted to skip right over that recap today, then we might miss the meaning of why God is communicating his law in chapters 20 through 23. Said another way, perhaps there was an architect in the 19th century, Louis Sullivan, who came up with this famous phrase, and you've probably heard this phrase even if you're not in architecture, form follows function. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? Okay, so some of you have, good. Uh, So form follows function. It's this idea that a building is designed in such a way its form that then relates to its function, its purpose. So for an example, we break that rule here at at this school, okay? Because the form of this room does not necessarily fit the function of what we try to do every week here in this service, but God provides a miracle, amen, right? Like we are able to expand this room every week. But but the, the theme there applies to all of life in some ways, right? That form follows function. In other words, the form being who you are, your heart, your identity, then shapes and, and relates to your function, how you live your life, what you do. Form follows function. 
And what Exodus 19 does for us is it gives us a glimpse of this reality. That as we think about God's commandments, as we think about his law, as we think about the things that he has written down for his people, we first have to have see in Exodus 19 that the form, who Israel is, their identity, is what relates to us, what influences their function, what they're called to do. And if we miss that, then we can misunderstand what the law actually represents today. And so as we look at this, our main idea is simply this, that God frees us to form us into a new community. That God frees us as a people to then form us into a new community. And we're going to see these these elements of form and function relating in our outline today. Our outline is simply this. We're going to look at Israel's identity, and then we're going to look at Israel's calling. We're going to first look at Israel's identity, and then their calling. And as we said from the beginning of Exodus, when we read Exodus, we're finding that Israel's story is our story. And so as we look at this text today, we're going to find that Israel's identity is our identity. And that Israel's calling is actually our calling as God's people. And so as we dive into the text in Exodus 19, let's not skip over that recap. And let's just join in to what God is doing at this point in the story of Exodus. Now, as we've been studying the book of Exodus, you can really divide it into two major episodes, right? You could say episode one is Exodus 1 through 18. It's telling the epic drama of how God has rescued his people out of Egypt. He's provided a way through the Passover lamb for them to escape death and then through the parting of the Red Sea to come into this place, the wilderness. And then last week we saw he provides for them in the wilderness, but surprisingly they are still grumbling and complaining. But then we see episode two begins today in Exodus 19, and it will carry through the rest of the book. And and episode two begins with this inauguration, that God is now forming his people at Mount Sinai to enter into a relationship with him a covenantal relationship with him. This is a historical moment in the life of Israel. Now, it's also historical because it's fulfilling the promise that God has already given Moses. If we were to look back at Exodus chapter 3, we see that Moses encounters God through this burning bush experience. And we're told through that he's commissioned and called to go back to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh what? To let my people go. But what does God tell him? He says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a promise. And this is the sign for you, he says, that I've sent you. That when you have brought the people out of Egypt, in chapter 3, he says this, you shall serve God on this mountain. And where does Israel find themselves in Exodus 19 today? On that mountain. It is the fulfillment of that promise that God would redeem and rescue his people. He would bring them out to the wilderness. And now he is fulfilling that promise by setting up this relationship, this intimate relationship with his people, that they would live with him and he would be their God. Now, Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, many scholars have said is the heart of the book of Exodus. It reveals God's heart for his people. Some even say it's the heart of what's called the Pentateuch, the first five books. Some would go as far as to say, these few verses that we're about to dive into is the heart of the entire Old Testament. It has a weightiness to it. It has a significance to it in the life of Israel. And so it's important that we understand this inaugural address that he gives them on Mount Sinai, lest we misunderstand what the giving of law really means. And so as we look at the speech, let's look at how he identifies Israel. What is their identity? Who are they? 
Who are they called to be? Picking up in verse 1, it says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So again, there's a lot of description happening here because this is an important piece of history for the, the, the people of Israel. Right? They would remember the exact time when this happened. Verse 2, they set out from Rephidim and they came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. Imagine, at this point, millions of people are camping now in this wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord came or called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, to the people of Israel, Tell them this, he says in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is incredibly important because order matters as we look at this, this uh, passage today. He doesn't say, I brought you out here, now obey me. He doesn't say, obey me so that I can then deliver you. He says, I am the one who bore you on eagle's wings. I am the one who delivered you out of Egypt. All the verbs are attributed to who? To God. He brought them out. He lifted them up. He has drawn them close. These are divine actions. He, as this mighty eagle, has swooping and down to rescue his people. It reminds me of Lord of the Rings. I, you love when I get a Lord of the Rings reference, right? I mean, you just love when I, I do that segue. It reminds me of Lord of the Rings, right? In the Fellowship of the Ring, how Gandalf is in this desperate, hopeless place. And what happens in that moment? An eagle comes and sweeps him up and rescues him. And then at the end of the trilogy in Return of the King, after the ring has been destroyed, destroyed in the Mount of Mordor, and Sam and Frodo are sitting there helpless with fire all around them, what swoops down from the smoke? Eagles. Thank you. <laughs> and they swoop down and they pick them up to rescue them. It's this image of utter hopelessness, but a God who sees that it provides a rescue. You see, the reason we start here is because this is their identity. It's important for us to understand that God has made a way for his people to be free. He has carried them on eagles' wings. Graciously and miraculously, he has delivered them to this mountain. And now he calls them to obey. Now, this is important because every other religion on this earth, uh, even how our human hearts orchestrate and operate, are on the complete opposite principle, right? We would say, no, we have to do right. We have to live right in order to be accepted and to be blessed. We have to live a certain way in order to experience love. But God reminds his people that I have already accepted you. I have already chose you. I have already rescued you. I've already demonstrated my love for you. I've already set you free. The order matters here. And the same is true for us. This is our identity as well. That in Christ Jesus, we have received an even greater exodus than the coming out of slavery of Egypt. And in our greater exodus, we have received a new identity, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us, which reminds us here that our identity is never wrapped up in what we do. It's always wrapped up in what God has done on our behalf, which means that the purpose of God giving his law could not be so that we could get to heaven one day. 
The purpose of him actually showcasing what it looks like to delight in him and to live for him cannot be the means of our acceptance before him. Because he's already told us in his word that he bore us on eagle's wings. He has provided a rescue. He has set us free. So the purpose of the law is not so that we can be accepted. For these people have already been accepted. They've already experienced their salvation. Now that form, right, that identity now influences their function. It influences their calling. So let's look at Israel's calling. Now we're going to see a few different ways in which this calling is, is fleshed out in verses 5 through 6 and then kind of how it's applied through Exodus 20 through 23. And I'm not going to satisfy all of your, your desire to study that text today because we have a limited amount of time, okay? So, so we're going to be brief here, but, but I'm going to identify three ways in which I see here that they live out this calling, that their identity is in what God has done for them, not but what they have done, but now they are, they are called to live in such a way because of their identity as God's people. And the first thing I would see is that they're called to live as free people. Notice again, at this point, Israel's relationship with God is a relationship of his deliverance. They've experienced his deliverance. They've been set free, but they're still learning what it looks like to live free. We've said it another way time and time again that, that God has gotten Israel out of Egypt. It's going to take a while for Egypt to get out of Israel, right? And so they're having to learn what it looks like to live as free people. And so it's fitting that he takes them to this place of the wilderness to learn this, because the wilderness is symbolic. In the Bible, it's a place of no borders, a place of disorder, of chaos. It's formless. It's in this formless place that God actually begins to introduce new limits in a place of disorder. Think about that for a moment. And it's in this place of the wilderness where there are no boundaries that God begins to set limits for his people. It reminds us of God's creation, right? In the beginning, the earth is void, it's formless. And what does God do? In his creative order, he begins to bring limits. He divides the sky and the water. He divides day and night. He divides the land where it has its limitations. And why does he do all that? For flourishing, for beauty to come about. In the same way, we see that the presence of boundaries in the Ten Commandments doesn't limit our freedom. It actually creates flourishing for us. He's not speaking to limit our freedom, but actually to create a place where we can thrive in freedom. He says here, again in verse 5, Now therefore you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Those lang that language of obedience and keeping, is, it sounds restrictive, doesn't it, right? When we first read that, we think maybe back to our childhood when we're told to obey our parents. We're like, ah, it's so hard. We don't like to do that. Or, or school, which we really don't like to do that, right? And it's this kind of restrictive feeling. And then we get to the Ten Commandments, we find this, this true as well, right? There's a lot of things God tells us not to do. Let's just take a look at them. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make yourself a carved image. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Verse 7, you shall not take the Lord's name uh, in vain, or the Lord's God's name in vain. Verse 10, speaking of the Sabbath, on it you shall not do any work. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness. And verse 17, you shall not covet. When you read that, you think, man, that sounds pretty restrictive, doesn't it? Sounds pretty confining. There's a lot of things he's telling us not to do. Doesn't make us feel very comfortable reading that, does it? That's because we're, we're told in culture that to live freedom is to follow our own dreams, to do whatever we feel like. The last thing we want to do in pressing on our freedom is restriction. 
But we said this time and time again as we studied Exodus, and we have to ask the question, is that really what freedom looks like? Is freedom really the, the absence of limits in this life? Or is freedom found in embracing the right limits? There was a study done by the American Society of Landscape Architects. Anybody read that magazine? Probably not. Um, so it's a group of researchers. I actually found this very fascinating. A group of researchers took these two groups of children, and they put them on two different playgrounds. And in doing so, what they did was they had two different playgrounds, and the only difference between two different playgrounds had the same swing sets, the same little jungle gym. The only thing different was one was in an open field where there were no fencing, limitless space. And the other one had boundary markers. It had a fencing around it. So they placed these two kids in these two different playgrounds, and the study showed what they thought was going to happen was that the ones who had the limitless space would have the most fun. But that's not actually what happened. They actually huddled right in the middle of the playground around the teachers because they didn't know what to do. They didn't know where their boundary markers were in life. They didn't know what they were actually capable of. And in the other study, you see that the ones that had the fencing, they're playing all the way to the edge of the fencing. They're enjoying every single part of that playground. Now, what does that remind us of? It reminds us of, I think, this passage today, that our freedom, our flourishing, as we see throughout the Bible, isn't when we remove, ignore limits. Our freedom, our joy in life actually comes when we embrace the right limits the limits that God has established for us. And so when God says, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, shall know God is before me, what he's saying there is that if you live in this reality, you will find freedom. That if you live within this, you're not just going to feel a moment, momentary impulse of freedom or a feeling of freedom. You're going to find how we flourish and thrive in this life. You're going to find how we can create beauty, how we can flourish. You see, to, the, the, the command here to obey and keep is not restrictive. It's actually the opposite. It's showing Israel how to live free, how to live out their salvation, how to live out what they've been rescued from. And so he tells them to, to live out this commandment, to live as free people. But then he says, live as his treasured possession. So he continues to add on this. And he says, not only do you obey my voice and keep my commandment, but you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. What does it mean to be God's treasured possession? Let me give you an illustration. When you really love someone, like when you're really starting to love someone, what do you do? you begin to research, right? Now, I'm not talking about some of you who have that, like, internet stalking, like, secret gift. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? <laughs> you, need, you probably need to repent of that. What I'm saying is, is you begin to try to figure out what that person delights in, right? You begin to try to think, like, what actually do they love? Like, what, what are their deepest passions? What, what actually brings delight to their hearts? What makes them happy? You begin to research those things because you desire to do those things for that person. There's a love that compels your heart to say, I want to find what they delight in. I want to find what makes them happy. And I want to do those things, not because they're coercing me to do those things, not because they're even asking me to do those things. I want to do those things because there's this moment when you love someone that your happiness and joy is linked to their happiness and joy. That you find delight when you are delighting the things that they delight in. And so when God says here that you will be my treasured possession, what he's telling us is he's saying, don't, don't obey me so that I'll treasure you in a sense that like uh, you have to obey me so I'll accept you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, delight in the things that I delight in. Like, like learn, learn what love looks like in my eyes. 
Learn what moves my heart and be moved by those things. And when you delight in me, you become treasure, a precious treasure. That word is so unique because it doesn't just mean any treasure. The the word here that he he, uh, is signifying for this possession, this treasure, is, is usually used to describe the private wealth of a king. Right, think of it in this sense. You're in a throne room of a great king. He owns all the land. He has all the possessions. He has everything he can imagine. All the people answer to him. And then right at his feet in that throne room, there is a box of treasure. And every now and then he reaches down to grab some of that treasure and, and play with it with his hands. And in it is jewels and gems and the finest of gold just to his liking. He carries that everywhere he goes because it brings him great joy. That's how God looks at his people. He says, all the earth is mine, but you are my treasure. I delight in you. I love you. And then we get to the question that our hearts have to wrestle with. If that is how God looks at his people, then do we treasure him? If God looks at his people and he says, you are my treasure, do we then in turn treasure him? Which is what he addresses at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. He says in verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Isn't God just simply saying here, I have loved you that no other God can love you. I have loved you in a way that no one else can love you. I have carried you. I have lifted you out of Egypt with my own hands. I have brought you out of slavery. I have brought you to this point before you obeyed me, before you did anything for me. I have set you free. I've done this simply because I love you. That's what he's screaming at the beginning of this. And the first thing he utters out of his mouth to his beloved is, don't have any other gods before me. Delight in me. Treasure me. This is the single foundation principle of of God's law. You'll you'll notice that everything else flows out of this. It is the single principle of all of God's law. That's why he says it before he says anything else. Because the fundamental problem with our human hearts is that we oftentimes love things more than God. We treasure things more than God. And if there's a problem in any other area of our life, whether that's we're failing to love other people, we're failing to tell the truth, we're failing to be generous, we're failing in any other way, it's because of this. Because there's something in within us that we're giving our treasure, our love, our devotion to, our commitment to. But God calls us here to commit to loving the one who delights in us as precious treasure. See, love and freedom are are interesting together. Because in one sense, I found that when we think of freedom, we think about our individual freedom, right? Like what makes us happy, what, what we feel good about. But then we think of love, and which is really, I think, is one of the highest goods of our society, right? You look at the TV, and every, every show is about love, right? Every movie is about love. Every song is about love. We're all dying to be loved and feel loved by someone, right? But love by its nature restricts freedom. Like, love by its nature actually restricts our freedom. To enter into a loving relationship with someone is, is requiring commitment. It's requiring sacrifice, attachment. It's requiring treasuring. 
Uh, this week, I was reminded by uh, a, a couple uh, here who's here today uh, who were telling me about their son, who's a youth pastor, about my, my days as a youth pastor, which were very brief, thank God. Um, but it was the first job I, I had, really. And uh, this church hired me because I don't think anyone else applied for the position. And, uh, and so the first, the first day on the job, basically, I come to these group of high schoolers. And I'm like, well, what do you guys want to talk about? That was, that was not a good decision. Because um, the first thing they utter out of their mouth is like, love dating relationships. I'm like, oh, great. So we're going to do a series on love dating relationships. All right. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't know how to start this off. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, I'm wet behind the ears. And so I go to a mentor of mine. I said, what would you do? He's like, well, we'll do this with them. He, tell, he tells me, he says, tell everybody to close their eyes. Just close your eyes. You don't have to do that right now. Okay. I'm just telling the story. He, I just, just close your eyes. Some of you are like, mm. all right, uh, <laughs> just close your eyes and, 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 and imagine this. Okay. Imagine this, that the boy or girl that you most like in school tomorrow comes to you and says, I love you. And you can just see everybody in the room, like their eyes, like they're getting kind of giggly, right? <laughs> and I let it sit for a little bit. And then I said, all right, imagine this, that the next day you overhear that same boy or girl telling someone else those same words, I love you. And you just see the distraught, like that fills their face all of a sudden. And the reason being is because if we have any kind of moral framework to, uh, to operate off, we understand that love requires commitment. It requires exclusivity. Those words mean nothing without closing off other options. The Bible tells us that we find our delight in God, our deepest freedom in God, when we're committed to loving God, when he is most important in our hearts. God looks at us, he says, you are, Israel, you are my, my precious treasure. Delight in me. Let us have this relationship of intimacy, this relationship of mutual delight. Be my treasured possession. But then he continues, and he doesn't just say it's the, through his love that he gives us this law. It's not just that we would live free, but that we could live specifically as a new community. Look at verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He gives them two descriptors here, that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now think about what God is doing here. God has gathered these people around a mountain, and he's bringing them to this place of a mountain, which is very uh, specific to Near Eastern culture. Because when you think about a community of people, a city, they would be drawn to a place, a central place of power, typically a mountain. Now typically this was a man-made mountain or something of that nature. So you might have uh, like a temple built on a hill that was the central uh, figure of the city, or sometimes you would have a ziggurat. You've heard that term before, that's a man-made kind of pyramid or tower that would be the central focus point of the city. So God is now gathering people around himself. And we see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, right? The story of the Tower of Babel, which was actually probably a ziggurat, something built in the center of the city, which humanity was coming together to showcase their influence, their glory, attaining achievement for themselves. And God is doing the exact opposite here. He is descending upon a mountain and he's gathering people around himself. And what does he tell them? Israel, you're going to be different you are going to be a different type of community, a different type of a city. You're going to look different from the ones around you. He says, you're going to be a holy nation, meaning you're going to be set apart, distinct from those around you. And giving of his law is to showcase what that distinction would look like. And so when you read Exodus 21, specifically Exodus 21 through 23, what you see is this manual that God has given Moses for what it's going to look like the people of God would be distinct. 
that they would be holy, set apart from the other nations. Now, in these ordinances, sometimes they're called the case laws uh, in Exodus 21 through 23. You see some of those are moral in nature. Some of those are more ceremonial in nature, and some of those are even judicial, right? There's, there's civil penalties for things that are happening in the, the nation of Israel, and all of it was given so that when they enter in the promised land, they would look distinct from the nations around them in the way they viewed things in life, the way they lived their lives. In the same way, God has called us to be distinct, right? That language of a holy nation is actually carried over into the New Testament, and what he calls us to is that if we've received his grace, if we've experienced salvation in Jesus Christ, we are now forming a new community, a new people. A people for his own possession, yes, but a people who is a holy nation, meaning that every aspect of our life should reflect that, should look different. When we think about our, our life, our economic life, our social life, our family life, and the way we handle things that are really intimate and hard in this world, like sex, money, and power, all of those things should look utterly different in God's community. That's what he's outlining here. Now, it's important for us to rightly apply these texts to our lives, though, because sometimes we'll read these case laws and we're like, like how does that have any influence in my life, right? Like, I, I don't have oxen. Like, I don't know if someone kills an ox, like what I'm supposed to do. Like, how does this apply to my life, right? And we have to read these in light of the entire scripture. We're reminded in the coming of Christ that he fulfills the law. In the New Testament, we're told this, that Christ comes and he lives perfect obedience to God's law and he fulfills that law. And there's certain aspects of that law, like the sacrificial system, that we don't apply to our daily lives anymore. Because Hebrews tells us and, and Corinthians tells us that Jesus has fulfilled that. He is the one who was sacrificed once and for all for the atonement of our sins we also see things like the ceremonial dietary laws, that Jesus himself says that in Mark 7, that the food is now clean. He declares that. We don't have to operate under those dietary restrictions. And then in the New Testament, we see that God's people now is a people that is not specific to one ethnicity anymore. It is a diverse people amongst all nations, under all kinds of different nation states and governments. So therefore, the civil penalties given to the law do not apply to our daily lives because it was given when Israel was a theocracy, when they were one singular political nation state. And so we understand the, the Bible is really pointing us to the significance of Christ and what he has done. Then these laws and how they're kind of kooky at times and different, they all make sense because in the, the day we see that Jesus has fulfilled these things. And there are certain aspects of the law that reveal the heart of God, and those are the things we don't want to miss. The things that reveal his character, the things that reveal his heart for people, his heart for himself. And so briefly, really briefly, I just want to go through a few of these for you so you can kind of see what I'm talking about when I, when I say that there are certain aspects of God's law that we can glean wisdom from and how it was applied to these case-by-case -case situations in the nation of Israel. Let's just take three really basic subjects that, that are hard sometimes for us to differentiate or see ourselves differentiating from our society. The first being the way we view sex. In Exodus 22, he says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give a bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, this may sound very confusing to us because we're like, what is a bride price? And we don't have that in our culture, do we, right? Like, this is weird. What is going on here? What is actually being established here is the first culture which adultery was not just a sin for women, but for men as well. What's actually being established here is that for the first time in Near Eastern culture, women could not be robbed of their dignity through sex. 
that cannot be disrespected through sex outside of the confines of marriage. And in fact, if that happened in a case like this, a man had the responsibility now and the accountability before God to take care of this woman. That was so different, so countercultural to the way the world operated. The first time a culture gives equal dignity to both men and women. Let's think money, for example. Exodus 22. Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your son shall, you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with uh, its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about a harvest, right? And when you have a harvest, the first harvest, you give back to God. And Deuteronomy would explain this a little bit further, that it's the first fruits of the harvest, you give your first fruits. You give the first of your wealth and offer that to God. The reason you give your first fruits is because, of course, you don't know in a harvest if you're going to have a second fruit or a third fruit or a fourth fruit, right? In its essence, you're having to trust God to provide for you. This is counterculture the way we often think about our money, right? If we have excess or an abundance that we've taken care of ourselves, then perhaps maybe then we'll give to help others. But God says that's not how we operate in the kingdom of God. We don't give our last fruits, we give our first fruits. And then he expounds upon this in Exodus 23 with what's called the gleaning laws. I'm not going to explain fully what this is, but basically when it was time to harvest, Israel was commanded not to harvest all the way to the edge of their fields. Why? They were, they were able to leave. They were supposed to leave a barrier around their fields of unharvest land so that those who are poor could go and harvest that and provide for their needs. It was countercultural in the way money was viewed. And let's think about power and influence significance. Exodus 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. See, God's expectation is not that we would use others for our own gain, but that we would care for those in need because he has cared for us when we were in our deepest need. In essence, God is reminding us in his character when we were sojourned, he provided a home for us. When we were fatherless, he adopted us. When we were widowed, he provided a groom for us. When we were strangers, he welcomed us. When we cried out for help, he answered. The very heart of God is displayed in his word. And so when we look at these case laws and we look at the, the, the fulfillment of this, we find that it is the heart of God. And when we look at that rightly, we can see that this is what it looks like for those of us who've been loved by God and been rescued by God to live as a society that looks different from the world around us, to be a holy nation. But not just different for the sake of being different, but being different because in our differences, in our holiness, there's an outward effect to the world around us. And that's why he says, you're not just a holy nation, you're a kingdom of priests. See, the job of a priest was to help people get into the presence of God, to see who God is. And when he tells us that we are a kingdom of priests, he's telling us we perform this kind of priestly obligation. That as a holy nation, we as a people of God who have been rescued and the love of God has been lavished upon us, when we delight in his law and we live our lives in that way, as a community, we reflect to the world around us who God is. They look inside and they see God. That's something at King's Church we have emphasized time and time again. Living in community together is a powerful witness to our city. It's a witness of his power and it's a witness of his realness. It's a witness of his love. And Jesus emphasized this on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we read this, oftentimes we think about our lives. We say, well, if I live an individually good life and I do good works, then people are going to see who God is. And that, in fact, is true. But notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't say if we as an individual do this, but we are a city that does this. And that same language of a city on a hill is what we see imaged here in Exodus 19, that God's people, a community, when they gather around God and they live for him, they are a city, a light unto the world. And we have been called as God's people to be that community. So when people look inside of our community, the world sees inside our community, they see people who get along together who would otherwise not. They see people who love each other who would otherwise fight with each other. They see people who are using their resources and their time in radically generous ways that other ways we would hoard it and manipulate it. They see the quality of our community. When they look into that, they see this holiness of God's people and what he is doing in that people who delight in him. And when they see that, they see a kingdom of priests, people who are reflecting God's glory. And just like Israel, we have been called to this. That as we delight in God, as we know our identity is in him, it's not of what we have done, but it's what he has done for us. And we live out of that devotion to him. We as a congregation here in this school get to showcase the realness and the power of our God to the city. We get to show this city what a different city looks like. What a community that understands freedom and beauty coming and found in Jesus Christ. And so as we close today, as we think about this text, as we come to a time of communion, reflecting what God has done for us, I want to pause and just remind us in this moment that it is our identity that influences our calling. Let's not get that backwards today. That our deepest needs are not paid for because of what we do or what we look like. Our deepest needs are paid because of what Jesus has done for us. And when we rightly understand that as a community, we can begin to live and treasure Jesus. The God who was limitless in power, the God who is limitless in authority, came to this earth in the form of a man, took on flesh. The eternal and limitless God limits himself and walks in this life of perfect obedience to God's law in a way that none of us lawbreakers could ever do. And he walks to the cross of Calvary and he does it so that we can be free. He does it so that we could experience freedom and life in him. He places on himself the sins of thousands of generations. Everything that we deserve, he takes upon himself so that we can gain everything that he has for us. The God in this text who thunders on the mountain was willing to walk into our graves so that we could walk into his life. See his love today. Jesus has loved us. And when we understand his love, there is a freedom you can know today that nothing else in this world can ever give you. There's a freedom that's greater than anything you could ever dream of. A freedom that reminds us that he is our salvation. That he has bore us on wings like eagles. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.